This morning we are once again in the book of Matthew. Uh, You know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we started to cover the details of Jesus' final week before the cross. Uh, A week that's uh, often referred to as the Passion Week. Uh, And we looked at the triumphal entry uh, at that time a couple weeks ago. Uh, And then last week we covered the events that transpired on Monday and the early morning of Tuesday. Uh, of Passion Week. Today's text is going to cover more early parts of Tuesday day, and so uh, we got a lot of portion to cover, and so let's jump right in, okay? If you have your Bibles with you, will you please make your way to Matthew chapter 21? And then uh, once you're there, why don't you uh, go ahead and stand as we read the, the opening verses of our text this morning. I do plan to cover the uh, rest of chapter 21 this morning, uh, but just for uh, sake of, uh, of getting started and getting going, we're just going to read the opening five verses uh, of the text this morning, verses 23 through 27. Let's, let's, let's read. Matthew 21, verse 23. It says, Now when he came into the temple, uh, this is speaking of Jesus, The chief priest and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. And so they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for your blessings upon our time and your word this morning. We do uh, thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is sufficient uh, to mold, to shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And and that's what we want to do here this morning. We want to be able to present ourselves uh, as just a a soft piece of clay, ready for you to do some working, to do some shaping uh, through the teaching of your word. Lord, I pray that we would not just understand this uh, educationally or, or just mentally, but Lord, we would be able to, to make application for our own lives, to learn from the lessons uh, before us in these verses. And so, Father, we know that we need your Spirit's leading and guiding to do that, and so we ask for your Spirit's continued presence with us, and we thank you uh, for the promise that you are here with us. And so, Father... Uh, bless our time. We ask and pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Thank you. Remember that we last left off with Jesus and the disciples making their way towards the city of Jerusalem on Tuesday morning. Okay, of Jesus' last week leading to the cross. And while on the way to the city, they stopped to get a little snack from a fig tree. If you guys remember, we covered that. Uh, the fig tree was along the side of the road. And it was then that the Lord cursed 
this fruitless fig tree. And he also gave to the disciples a lesson about faith. And so today we pick up on the account with Jesus and the disciples having entered into the city of Jerusalem where they went straight into the temple just as he had done on Monday morning, if you recall, when he drove out all the people buying and selling in the temple. This time, however, as he enters to the, the temple, we don't see him, uh, Jesus, cleansing out, the, cleansing out the temple. But as verse 23 tells us, he was teaching. Actually, Luke's gospel tells us that he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel to them in Luke chapter 20, verse 1. And I find it interesting that Jesus continues to teach in the temple and preach the gospel. Consider with me the fact that this is Jesus' final week before he would be crucified. In fact, tradition tells us that this Tuesday that they are on is uh, and will be Jesus' final day of public ministry before his crucifixion. For the last three years, he has reached out to these people in hopes... Thanks, Sydney. Sorry about that. Uh, in hopes that they would turn from their sin and follow him. To me, I would think that Jesus, knowing this was his last week, his final day of public ministry, that he would uh, just pull out all the stops, okay, making every possible effort to those around him to properly identify him as the Messiah. You know, think of what he could have done. He could have done all sorts of miracles to show that he was from God. He could have done uh, supernatural things. He had the power of God at his disposal, and yet we read that he was simply went to the temple and taught the people. And as I read that, you know, it blesses me and it encourages me. It blesses me because, you see, even though Jesus could have done all sorts of miraculous things to evidence himself as God, he chose to simply teach God's word. And it's a good reminder for us of the importance God places upon his word. His word was sufficient enough to reach the people. Miracles, signs, and wonders were not needed. Just simply His Word. And for me, that is encouraging. It reminds me that the Lord doesn't need us to, to, to put on a show for others. Okay? He doesn't need to uh, have a you know, whole lot of fanfare and, and lights and, and smoke and you know, all sorts of great things. But just simply teaching His Word. And, and that's our focus here at Calvary. We want to just simply teach His Word. It's not going to be flashy. Okay? And I'm not trying to say that I teach like Jesus. That's certainly not the truth. But we want to just focus upon simply teaching the Word because His Word is sufficient to reach others. Here He was on His final public day of ministry. And what did He go to do? He went to go teach. Okay? As Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, the chief priest and the elders, they confronted him. The chief priest and elders, you guys know, most of you know this, uh, but they were part of the religious system that was in place during that day. The chief priests, they were in charge uh, of temple worship in Jerusalem and the, were regarded as, as really leading representatives of the Jewish people. And many of the elders served as uh, local town and synagogue uh, leaders, as well as uh, sitting, excuse me, sitting upon the Jewish council, which was known as the Sanhedrin. 
Okay? Elders were seen as guardians of religious tradition. And they confronted Jesus, wanting to know two things. They wanted to know, by what authority are you doing these things? And they wanted to know, who gave you this authority? Although not explicitly listed these things, I believe that they, are, that they questioned him about, most likely dealt with the events of the last couple days of what happened on Sunday and Monday and here even Tuesday morning as the, he's coming in and teaching in the temple. If you recall that just the events of the last two days in that time frame and what was going on, Jesus had come down the Mount of Olives on, the, on a foal of a donkey with people praising and worshiping him as he made his way into the city and they were laying down palm branches and their garments before him like a royal procession. He came into the temple and he drove out all those who were buying and selling animals for sacrifice along with the money changers and they flipping over their tables and, and causing quite the scene. He accused the people of turning his father's house, which was to be a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. He healed the blind and the lame while the children sang his praises as the son of David. They said, Hosanna to the son of David. All of these things that Jesus did pointed to Jesus claiming authority to be the Messiah. Okay? But what the religious leaders wanted to know was where did Jesus get the gall to claim such authority? Okay? Who gave him the right to make such a claim? Because it certainly didn't come from them as the religious leaders. And so they demanded, Who, who's given you this authority and what authority uh, are you able to do these things? And it's interesting, Jesus answers them as he often did when he dealt with the religious leaders. He answered them with a question of his own. Let's read verse 24 and 25, part of 25 at least. He says, Jesus answered and said to them, I also will, give, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? Jesus' response was that if they would answer one question, he would in turn answer their question. Jesus then asked the men about the baptism of John, okay, and whether it was from heaven or from men. And basically what he was asking was the same question that they had asked of him, only switching the subject matter to John the Baptist. Who gave John the Baptist his authority? Recall that the ministry of John the Baptist was that uh, of a forerunner for Christ. Okay? As Mark declares in his gospel record, right in the very opening verses, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way before you? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance out in the desert. And many from Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding regions of the, uh, of the Jordan River, they came out to John to be baptized there in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And Jesus narrows down the options here to two very different opposing views. Either John, either John's ministry was from heaven, meaning that John was sent by the Lord 
as a prophet and, and did not act upon his own willfulness, but was ministering, ministering as the Lord will. Or John's ministry was from men, meaning John the Baptist was nothing more than a charlatan. Okay? He masquerading as a servant of the Lord in hopes to influence people for his own selfish desires and or ambitions. How did they respond? Well, let's continue in verse 25. It says, And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. And so they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. The chief priests and the elders, they reasoned among themselves. Okay? The, the Greek word for reason is, I'm going to butcher it, but I'll give it a try, dialogizomai. Dialogizomai. Say that one three times fast, huh? Uh, it is the same root word, our English word for dialogue. Okay? And so the idea here is that they huddled up together, they dialogued amongst each other, they talked about it and, and with one another, and this is what they came to. If we say that John the Baptist was from heaven, he's going to ask us, why we didn't believe him. Because you see, the, the assumption being is that these men as the religious leaders and representatives of the Lord to the Jewish people, they would certainly go along with something that had come from the Lord and from heaven. Okay? And since they didn't go along with John the Baptist and his ministry, that would make them look bad in front of the people. They would look like poor representatives of the Lord to the Jewish people. And if they say that John the Baptist's ministry is from men, that he was a fake, a, a, a phony, that the people would then be upset because the people all counted John as being a prophet sent by God. And so although they didn't believe in the ministry of John the Baptist, they were afraid to let that be known because they didn't want to in, that to impact their influence that they had upon the people. And so the only recourse they could come up with was to lie and say, we don't know. Or as the King James, I like how the King James writes it, it says, we cannot tell. That's right, they cannot tell. <laughs> they couldn't tell, not because they hadn't made a decision. They had made their decision whether John's Baptist was from heaven or from men. Okay? They couldn't tell. They, they said, we do not know because answering either way would hinder their relationship and their impact, their power over the people. You know, I did a word study on that word uh, know when he says, uh, we do not know. And it literally means to see to either perceive with the eyes uh, or uh, by any other sense, most notably the mind, to see with the mind. When he says, we do not know, it was like them saying, we don't see with our mind. The chief priest and, and the elders, they rightly described their assessment. They could not see. They could not perceive with their mind. They were blind. They were blind to the ministry of John the Baptist, just as they have been blind to the ministry of Jesus Christ. In their reasoning, the chief priests, they really do show their true colors 
and, and really what is their biggest problem. You see, the chief priests and the elders feared the people instead of fearing God. They didn't want to look like poor representatives in front of the people, and they didn't want to say anything that would get the people mad. They cared more about what the people thought and how they would respond than what the Lord thought and how He would respond. Somewhere along the road, they had exchanged the fear of the Lord with the fear of people. And it was their ruin. And let me tell you something else. It will be our ruin as well. If we exchange the fear of the Lord for the fear of people, it will ruin us just as it ruined them. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 25 states that the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. If we make our life or or our priority about just pleasing people, we will be miserable. It is an impossible task to please all the people. Instead of thinking what would please the people, we need to ask ourselves what would please the Lord. We need to fear the Lord, not man. And that was the problem of these religious leaders. They had grown a fear for man and exchanged that for their fear of the Lord. The psalmist declares, Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. There is no no want or lack to those who fear Him. Psalm 34 verse 9 you know, uh, my pastor down at Calvary Chapel, Okinawa, a great friend of mine, uh, Pastor Rick Barnett, he described the fear of the Lord in this manner. He says, To fear the Lord means we have a healthy respect, adoration, and awe of His majesty and might. But it also means we understand His holiness and His righteous judgments. Practically speaking, it means that, one, that we make our goal to please God. Number two, it means that we are more concerned with what God thinks is right and what we should do than what other people think. Thirdly, we know that this ties into a healthy fear of the Lord as well. We know that in the end, we will answer to God. And we have a great confidence that our identity and our worth is found in Him and not what others think. I hope that we would all have a healthy fear of the Lord. One that reveres the Lord, honors the Lord, seeks to please the Lord. Not because we're, we're, you know, and it's different than a a secular fear that we think of. Like, oh, I'm I'm scared of him, he's going to strike me down. It's, It's out of reverence. Of His holiness and who He is and what He's done. To realize how significant He is compared to how insignificant we are. And yet He has that desire to have a relationship with us. It ought to cause a healthy fear and reverence for the Lord. And I hope that we would all have that healthy fear of the Lord in our lives. Let's continue verse 27. Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority authority I do these things. Since the chief priests and elders would not answer his question, he did not answer theirs. At least not directly. 
You see, what's going to happen next is Jesus is going to share three different parables that all have to do with Israel and the religious leaders' rejection of God. Obviously, the answer to the questions that they asked about uh, regarding the authority that Jesus had, where it came from, is answered in God. Jesus did what He did by the power of God that was given to Him by His Father. He was sent by the authority of God to do the will of His Father here on earth. But the religious leaders had rejected God. And that too is why Jesus didn't answer them directly. And in the following parables, He's going to picture their rejection. We're going to cover two of the three parables. you have to come back next week to get the third and final parable. Okay, but all of them deal with Israel's rejection of God. And we're going to look into them right now. Verse 28 through 31. Or at least the opening part of verse 31. Jesus, he's speaking to the, the people, the, the chief priests. There's a crowd of people there as well, obviously, because the chief priests and the elders were fearful of what the people would think. Jesus says, but what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, son, go, work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Jesus asked. Remember, as we've studied through the book of Matthew, for those of you who have been with us for a while, we've come across a number of parables before. Okay? When we look at a parable, we need to realize that a parable is an earthly story that conveys a heavenly truth. Okay? An earthly story that conveys a heavenly truth. Most all the parables will speak of elements that are readily understood, as in here, a father asking his sons to go work in his vineyard. The father came to his first son and he asked him to go work today in my vineyard. But the first son said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and it went. You know, the Greek word used for regretted, it means to change one's mind or purpose after having done something regrettable. Okay? And so the idea here is that uh, the first son, he experienced regret after what he, he thought about what he had said, how he was been disrespectful to his father. He regretted speaking to his father in such a manner, and he desired to change his actions based upon that regret. And so he went, and he worked in his father's vineyard. The father came to the second son after he had finished speaking with the first son and asked him to do the same exact thing. And the second son answered, I go, sir. You know, I I think some of you guys can kind of maybe relate with that. Okay? Okay. But he did not go. Maybe some of you guys can relate with that too, and that's not so good. You know, the second son said he would go, but he didn't. He even spoke very respectfully to his father, okay? Calling him sir. But we see that it was all lip service. The second boy had no intention, second man, the second son, had no intention of doing what his father wanted. He was satisfied with just offering lip service to his father. Jesus then asked, which of the two did the will of his father? And let's see how the 
the group replied. They said to him, The first. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent. Or that word relent, it can also be to uh, regret. And believe in him. They answered correctly by identifying the first son as the one that did his father's will. The first son, although he started off being disrespectful to his father, he regretted it. And he followed through with his father's request, thus fulfilling the father's will. Jesus then turned this parable upon the religious leaders. And in doing so, he explains to us the parable. Okay? We don't have to f- try and figure this one out. We are given the key right here. Okay? Jesus identified the first son that did the father's will with the tax collectors and harlots that believed in John the Baptist's ministry. The tax collectors and harlots, they were notorious for their sinfulness, obviously disrespecting their heavenly father in the meantime, but they listened to what John the Baptist had to say. And they regretted the things that they had done. And they believed upon John and they came out to be baptized by him. Jesus identified the second son with the religious leaders that did not believe in John the Baptist's ministry. And even after seeing the ministry with their own eyes and witnessing the Father's working, they still would not believe upon him. The religious leaders, the chief priests and elders, they cared more about looking the part and saying what they were supposed to say, offering lip service to the Father, than actually following through with the Father's will. And even even after seeing the Father working through John the Baptist, they would not believe. They went out. If you read in the early accounts of the Gospels, They sent people out. They sent delegates out to go find out what's going on. Some of them even came out there to see. And they took notes. And they knew what was happening out in the desert. That God was doing a great work there. But they didn't want anything to do with it. And that is why Jesus said that the tax collectors and harlots would enter the kingdom of God before them. Because they at least were willing to respond to the ministry of John the Baptist. But these religious leaders would not. You know, this must have been a very shocking statement for the religious leaders to hear and even more difficult to accept. You see, they prided themselves on being God's representatives to the people and they despised tax collectors and harlots. Luke, at, Luke 18, actually, Jesus tells of another parable where Jesus describes a Pharisee and a tax collector that are going to pray and how the Pharisee prayed a prayer of thanks that said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as this tax collector. There was a disdain for tax collectors. Man, thank you that I am not like them. They're so horrible people. And then Jesus says, they're going to be going to the kingdom before you. Whew! That would have been hard to swallow. But that was their mindset. They put themselves way above the likes of tax collectors and harlots. The words of Jesus had to be stinging 
in their ear, and hopefully in their heart. But we're not so sure that that happened. As we consider this parable, I think there is a strong warning in it for us today as well. Look, we don't want to be people that just give lip service to the Father. There are a lot of people in churches today that are satisfied with simply giving lip service to the Lord without any intention of doing His will. His will. They'll say Jesus is their Lord and Savior, and they'll admit the Bible is the Word of God, and it's true, and they know all the Christian phrases, and they can speak Christianese with the best of them. But unfortunately, they're just words. They don't live like Christ is their Lord and Savior, submitted to Him and honoring Him. They don't read God's Word or look to follow its teachings. And with their mouth they bless their God and Father, and with it they curse men. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. James says, my brethren, these things ought not to be so. And so we need to take a look at our own life. And we need to make sure that we're not simply offering lip service to the Lord. Because He deserves more than that. God deserves better and more than our lip service. He wants our hearts of of obedience and willingness, not our flattery of words. As mentioned, this parable, it highlights the religious leader's rejection of God. And specifically we see that this parable highlights the rejection of God, the Father. We see the connection there. As there's the, it's the Father that they do not do the will of. The next parable also highlights the leader's rejection of God, but it's going to come in a different, at a different angle. So let's jump into that. Verse 33. Jesus continued. He said, Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. We'll pause right there. Okay? This parable is actually rooted in an Old Testament description given by Isaiah in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And so I'm going to turn there. If you want to turn there and, and read as well, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I'll read it to you, but if you want to swipe there or flip there uh, and, and read along, Isaiah 5, verse 1 through 7. Verse 1, it says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now... O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. 
I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no, that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. A great number of details in the account of Isaiah are similar here in our opening verse of this parable. Okay? A vineyard, a tower, a wine press, a hedge. Okay? They're all here in Isaiah chapter 5 as well as in verse 33 of our text. Okay? And Isaiah gives to us the identity of the landowner as well as the vineyard. Okay? The landowner of the vineyard is the Lord. It's His vineyard. And the vineyard, according to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, is the house of Israel, God's chosen people. The provisions within the vineyard, they, they speak of God's provisions for Israel as He brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land. A hedge. You know, a hedge is used to, to surround a vineyard. Okay? And often is used to mark a perimeter of a vineyard. The hedge here speaks of the borders that surrounded the nation of Israel as they journeyed into the promised land and they divided the land amongst each other. God gave to them these borders, this hedge. A tower is used as a lookout against anything that would be dangerous for the vineyard. And it represents God, God's ever-seeing eye that looked after and protected the nation against dangers. A wine press. It's what's needed in order to produce wine from grapes. And it represents God's provision and everything that would be needed in order to be fruitful and to be a prosperous nation. God supplied it all for them. Back in Matthew, we look here at verse 33, and we actually are given a few more details. Okay? We're told that the, the landowner leased this vineyard to vine dressers and that the owner went away into a far country. The vine dressers represent the leaders of Israel. They were left in charge of the house of Israel and were expected to take care of the people and to be fruitful unto the Lord. The fact that the vineyard was leased shows a connection uh, to a certain expectation that the vine dressers cannot just do whatever they want with the vineyard. Okay? They, that they had to keep it in good condition and they were, uh, there was a reasonable expectation of payment given to the owner by these vine dressers. And we'll see how that expectation unfolds as we continue. The owner going away to a far country is obviously symbolic of the Lord and His presence in heaven. So we kind of got the pieces in place now. And so we're going to read through this and try and understand what he's saying here, but also to understand what he's saying. Uh, not only the, the earthly story, but the heavenly truth. Let's read verses 34 through 39. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. 
But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And so they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. As vintage time drew near, the landowner sent his servants to receive the appropriate fruit and wine from the vineyard. It must have been an agreed-upon lease payment for the land. And the servants represent to us, in this portion of Scripture, the prophets that God sent to remind the people of God's blessings and expectations, that God desired that their lives would be fruitful in bringing God glory and, and even being a light to other nations, the prophets were sent. Verse 35 says that the vine dressers, they took the servants and they beat one, stoned one, and killed another. And, and, and this is the story of the nation of Israel. That they have beaten, stoned, and killed their prophets that were sent to them from the Lord. Interestingly, I find it very interestingly, <laughs> God sends more servants in verse 36. This is a, a wonderful picture of the long-suffering and patience of the Lord, not to mention His merciful heart. If I sent servants to go collect payment and they were beaten, stoned, and killed, I don't think I would send more servants next time. I'd be sending someone, but probably wouldn't be servants. And I, and I think I'd be looking to bring the heat. But, but not so with the Lord. And it's a great reminder, as we see as he's unfolding here, just a, a note for us, uh, of God's patience. That God is patient and merciful, offering to them another chance. Chance after chance after chance, the nation of Israel was given. And I believe that the Lord is still not done with the nation of Israel. And I'm so very thankful that He's given to me chance after chance after chance. And I think and I hope that you are in the same position as well. That you're thankful that God is patient, that God is merciful, that He gives to us another chance. Unfortunately, the vine dressers, they treated these servants just the same as the first round of servants. Again, a, a picture of the history of Israel that continued to kill God's prophets sent to them all the way up until the killing of John the Baptist. Verse 37 tells us, last of all, that he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. And despite the fact that they had killed his previous servants, the landowner is now willing to send his very own son. Again, a picture of the mercy and grace of the Lord. It is amazing. And this, of course, is a picture of God sending His Son, Jesus Christ, as the long-awaited Messiah, the King of the Jews. And what did the vine dressers do? They plotted to kill Him. And they wanted to seize the inheritance all to themselves. And when the Son showed up, they took Him and they cast Him out of the vineyard and they killed Him. And this picture for us, this picture is for us the killing of Jesus. This has not yet happened, but he's telling them a future thing that's going to happen. That they are going to kill my very son. 
It speaks of the work of the cross. Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8 says that Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You know, even the very fact that they took him and cast him out of the vineyard is a picture of what happened to Christ. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 through 13, they tell us, basically my summary here, that just as the sacrifices whose whose blood atones for our sin uh, were carried outside the camp, Jesus too, that, as the scripture says, that he might sanctify all people by his blood, suffered outside the gate, rejected by his own people, but placed outside the camp for all of us to have access to him. And so even the fact that they cast him out of the vineyard and then they killed him out there is a picture of Christ and what they are going to do to Christ. After explaining the details of this parable, Jesus posed a question to them. Verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus asked what the owner would do to the vine dressers when he comes, and unbeknownst to them, they pronounce their own demise. They speak of how the owner will come and deliver judgment upon those wicked vine dressers, and he will lease the vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. Let's read verse 42 through 46, final verses of the chapter. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? I I think that's a little funny. It might be a little dig, but I don't want to put that on the Lord. That's how I think. You know, these are the religious leaders. Have you ever read the scriptures? But anyways, he says, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes, again the fear of the people, because they took him, being Jesus, for a prophet. Jesus responds to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? And he quotes from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Psalm 118 is a a psalm that is rich with messianic ties. It is the psalm that the people were crying out when Jesus entered into Jerusalem during the triumphal entry when they said, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of the David. That's from Psalm 118. It's just a couple verses down after 22 and 23. In quoting Psalm 118, 22 and 23, Jesus is explaining to the religious leaders that He was that Son and that the religious leaders were the wicked vine dressers. Throughout Scripture, God is referred to as a rock or a stone. Okay? And the same goes for Jesus. Jesus is described as a stumbling block to Israel. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, it says, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block. And, but to the church, Jesus, he, he, he's a type of stone, but he's not a stumbling stone. He's not a, a stumbling block. To the church, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 through 22 says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And so Christ, to the church, He's a stone, but He's the chief cornerstone. He's not a stumbling block. Because the religious leaders rejected the chief cornerstone, Jesus declares that the kingdom of God will be taken from them and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Okay, that word nation does not mean another country. Okay? but another people group. Okay? Namely, the church that was about to be birthed and eventually filled with both Jews and Gentiles. And we know this based upon what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 6 through 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you can. Okay? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 through 10. Peter writes, he says, Therefore it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you, speaking to the church, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We, the church, are the new nation that God has given His kingdom to, and we must be careful not to fall into the same temptation and practice of those before us. God expects us to bear fruit as well. It was a point we made last week. That God wants us to be fruitful people. Verse 44, it's a verse that has caused some people to scratch their head over. And so I'm going to try and explain to you as simply as possible verse 44. The stone is speaking about Jesus Christ. Okay? And whoever falls on Jesus Christ will be broken. Now... Normally, we would think of something that is broken as a bad thing, okay? If, if my kid breaks their toy, they're not happy, okay? And if we break our arm or our leg, we're not happy, right? Breaking things is not good. But here, okay, uh, in God's kingdom, brokenness, it, it's not only a good thing, but it's also an essential thing. We must fall upon Christ 
in humility and allow Him to break us of our pride and arrogance, our own self-will and stubbornness, that we may be completely submitted to Him and His will. Whoever does not choose to fall on Christ and be broken before Him will have Christ fall upon them, crushing them, as it's described in the ESV and the NIV. Jesus is not only described as a stumbling stumbling stone to the Jews and the chief cornerstone to the church, but he is also described as a crushing stone through the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, it speaks of a prophecy concerning the end of the age when a stone not cut with hands, that's pictures a representative of Christ, will be used to crush the Gentile kingdoms and establish God's glorious kingdom. And so we are offered a choice of brokenness. We can either fall upon Jesus and be broken by Him of our pride, of our sinfulness, which isn't always pleasant, but it is necessary. Or, for those that don't want to submit to Jesus and fall upon Him, He will ultimately fall upon them, crushing them and grinding them to powder. And the choice is ours to make. We can either be broken before Him or crushed by Him. And that's what verse 44 is speaking about. I suggest to all of you, if you have not yet, that you fall upon Him in brokenness. I guarantee you the latter will not be as pleasant. You do not want Him to fall upon you in judgment when He offers to each and every one of us an opportunity of grace and forgiveness if we would simply fall upon Him and be broken before Him. You know, the beauty of being broken before the Lord is that He takes the pieces and He puts them back together again. And He makes something beautiful out of something that's broken. But He can't make that thing beautiful until it's first broken. And so we must come to the Lord, fall upon Him, and allow Him to break us Not so that we can just sit in a big pile of pieces and be nothing. So that He can take those pieces and put them back together again. To make something beautiful. I hope that we have all made that decision. And if you're here today and you've not made that decision, I want to encourage you to prayerfully consider that decision. Prayerfully consider. You see, if you haven't made that decision to allow Him to to break you, to fall upon Him, your decision is the latter. You can't be undecided. You either have fallen on Him and have been broken by Him and He is putting the pieces back together in your life, or you've chosen to allow Him to to crush you. And I want to encourage you all to be broken before the Lord. Just as, this first, just as the first parable was used to describe Israel's rejection of God, so is this one. Okay? The first one emphasized the rejection of the Father's will. 
This second parable emphasizes Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ, the Son. Next week, we will cover the third parable in a row that depicts Israel's rejection of God. And we will see how each of these parables builds upon one another to show ultimately the complete rejection of God of well, I don't want to tell you, but you might be, be able to guess what the next one's going to tie into. As the first one talked about the rejection of the Father, the second, the rejection of the Son. Next week we will see. Well, come next week and you'll see. All right? Let me pray for you. Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, we do thank you that you are very patient with us. And you're very merciful. Lord, you've given to us many chances. And like the nation of Israel, we've blown a lot of those chances. But we thank you for your grace and for your forgiveness. Lord, we thank you that as we've been able to come before you and just allow ourselves to be broken, Lord, that you've taken, you take the pieces and, you, and you're putting them back together and you're building a beautiful thing. And Lord, sometimes we come to come to church and you want to do some, some working on us. You want, to, you want to take those pieces and mold and shape them a little bit more. And so I pray that we would not be resisted, resistant to the work that you want to do in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would not be a people that just give you lip service. Lord, I, I, I pray that our heart is not to, to fear man, but to fear you, to live for you, to live to please you. Father, we can't do that in and of ourselves. We know we need your spirit strength, and so we do ask for it. We ask for the spirit strength to live holy for you, Lord, to live a life that brings you honor and glory, to be a bright light for you, that we might be profitable vine dressers for you, that we would be fruitful and that we would be a blessing. And so, Father, empower us to do so. We thank you again for your grace. Thank you again for your Son, Jesus Christ, and the suffering and pain that he endured on the cross for us. We thank you for him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.